you start off, you might be wanting more warmer fluids because you are feeling cold from that external uh, exposure. As the intensity increases, your core body temperature goes up, you start to normalize that core body temperature, you probably want cool fluids again. So it's it's also that ebb and flow of what is actually desired and desirable throughout the event, which is probably going to change for any athlete, especially with weather conditions. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask. It's the stuff you talk about in your training sessions um, with your training mates, or it might be after the coffee table in your recovery session. We'll break it down and invite a guest expert uh, to answer in part A, and then in part B, we'll have a uh, athlete to give the um, practical perspective. So today it's episode 37A, how should my nutrition change when it's really cold? We've got a sports dietitian Rebecca Hall and Beck works for the Olympic Winter Institute of Australia and attended the recent 2022 Winter Olympics and Paralympics in Beijing. She's also worked at the Canadian Sports Institute with winter athletes, as well as with many of the middle distance runners. So we are going to discuss what happens from a biological perspective in terms of calorie expenditure and nutritional needs when we're training or competing in a cold environment. So that can be um, anything sort of less than five degrees. We'll talk about the fluid needs and um, how our drive for thirst may be impacted in very cold um, climates. And then what do we actually mean by cold? So we'll talk about the differences between cold weather and then um, cold body temp, and Beck explains that really well. We'll also go over the practicalities of consuming nutrition products when trading or competing in very cold environments. So that can be when your hands are really cold and they're not working that well, or when you're wearing thick gloves and, um, and also what nutrition options won't go rock hard in the cold and you can actually still chew them. We'll also talk about Beck's experience of working with winter Olympic and Paralympic athletes and the recent Beijing Games, including a kind of very quirky experience of having to use what's typically a bathroom and actually converting that into a kitchen in order to be able to prepare and supply food to 60 athletes that um, they were looking after who were competing at the Games. So before we get stuck into that, um, how are you, Al? I feel like I haven't seen you for a couple months or so. Yeah, well, it hasn't been that long, but uh, yeah, that's that's you escaping rather than uh, rather than me going anywhere. I've been holding the fort, but um, yeah, no, all good. It's I guess crunch time with the semester, so 
from a teaching point of view at the uni, it's getting exams ready and answering lots of anxious questions from anxious students. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's, there's that and um, doing some, some more work with Sports Dietitians Australia on some coursework stuff for them as well, which is good. So yeah, bit of, bit of that, bit of this, um, bit of running around after kids. So yeah. Yep. How about you? You've obviously just come back from your holiday, Steph. Tell us all about it. Well, work first and then holiday while you're over there in Western <laughs> Australia. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it went really well. We went over for the Margaret River Ultra Marathon. So that's a 80-kilometre event. Um, and you either do that solo or you um, can do that as a relay team. So, And that was sold out. There were 1,500 comp- competitors um and yeah we went over mainly well for two reasons for Pascal's uh youth study so part of her PhD um looking at the impact of running these um big ultras uh when youth are competing in them we also collected the lovely um fecal samples from adults that were completing that event as well um and that's for another research project that's um going on as well so Ooh, yeah, glad it was you, not me, Steph. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it was. Uh, it's always entertaining, isn't it, when we have to ask participants for a bit of poo? Um, and we actually had partners that had to then, you know, kind of deal with handing that over to us. <laughs> so um, yeah, that was quite entertaining. But yeah, successful and uh, a really well run event as well. Yeah, awesome. Mm. So our social media shout-outs um, questions, we've, we've had a lot this week. We have, yeah. So firstly on Instagram, we had Megan and Matt from the Great Southern Endurance Run, which uh, our guest last week, Kelly Emerson, mentioned on the podcast that she'd done that uh, event last year. Um, and they, they gave us a bit of a shout-out on their Instagram and Facebook as well, saying if you haven't checked out the Long Munch podcast you're missing out, be sure to give them a follow and subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> um, and they said their latest episode features our 2021 28-kilometre winner, Kelly Emerson. So, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you, Megan and Matt, for that. Uh, we also had Dr Alice McNamara, who we hear from quite a bit. Um, she, she posted, um, she was really interested in the uh, the two episodes we did around nutrition for athletes during pregnancy and breastfeeding. Mm. And she talked about that, um, said recommended listening from both uh, Alicia Edge, who was in the A episode, uh, and Kelly Emerson in the B episode. Really practical, real talk about real experiences. Thank you, ladies and Alan. (laughs) And don't worry, Alice, um, I'm a dietitian, so I'm used to being the token male. I have been for the last... 15 or 20 years, so nothing's nothing's new there. Um, we also had Jamie contact us uh, all the way from the UK um, saying, hello, guys, thanks so much for the podcast. You really enjoy it and find it to be a useful resource. Uh, he's an exercise science student over there in the UK, and he was suggesting a couple of different potential topics that we could look at or, or questions that we could answer on the podcast. One was around fibre intake um, and using fibre uh, or manipulating the amount of fibre in your diet deliberately as a weight loss strategy. Um, his background is in cycling, uh, and it is something that I know some cyclists do to deliberately try and reduce maybe you know half a kilo to a kilo or so um, by deliberately dropping down their fibre intake for a few days before a key race where weight is going to be really important. Um, so it's not obviously going to be a dramatic reducing reduction in calories, so it's not an energy availability issue. Mm-hmm. It's just about reducing down the fibre to 
to minimise the amount of contents that's sitting in your gut um, at any one time. So that might be something we have a look at one stage. We did talk about a while ago, Steph, maybe mm. looking at fibre um, because it's come up in a few podcasts, um, but not directly. So having a one dedicated specifically to the role of fibre in running cycling and triathlons. So from a gut point of view, but also in this case from a, a weight point of view as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jamie was also talking about pushing the limits of carb intake beyond 90 grams an hour during exercise and whether it's really beneficial or not. And um, we are actually working on setting up another episode. We already had that in mind, specifically looking at how much carbs in terms of grams per hour to have during training and, and race day as well. Um, and so that will sort of form part of that. So, yeah, we'll hopefully get that up and running really soon. We're talking to someone about that at the moment. Uh, and then we had Kate Galash, dietitian over in Adelaide, uh, giving us a bit of an update on the Biscoff Kit Kat. And I'd forgotten, I hadn't seen this, uh, Steph, so you could better fill us in on on the update mm-hmm. with the Biscoff Kit Kat. Yeah, well, I um, was just, yeah, checking through socials and saw this um, photo that Kate sent through. Um, and uh, and so, of course, I think I only saw it last night and so I had to go to the supermarket today and get one and um yeah 10 out of 10 um thank you kate for that one um highly recommend it out so your next supermarket shop um grab one and um yeah i think i think you'll love it too yep cool <laughs> all right uh nothing on twitter this week i don't think what about facebook mm. steph yeah facebook um we had one from georgia um georgia i'm terrible at pronouncing the surnames and i should know this um what do you reckon, Al, with the surname? Lubinus. Lubinus. Georgia will That'd correct be my me. Guess. Yep. Um, yeah. So Apologies, I met... Georgia, because it's probably wrong. <laughs> I met Georgia down in Adelaide um, when we were both training with a group called Team Tempo. Um, but she found out that I was going off to, to Perth from, I think, our last episode. And she provided me with some great traveling advice. So thank you for that. But she also just said she is loving listening to the podcast each week and that she found episode 32A um, very insightful. And that um, episode was relating to the menstrual cycle um, and the impact on endurance performance and nutrition needs, uh, where we had Claire um, Minahan um, talk about that. And then also Katie Thurbsday, um, who had requested um, and helped us with the one of our episode um, topics, which was asking the question about um, what we should consume if we're still training and or competing during pregnancy and or postpartum. And she just said that she's finished listening to those episodes and really appreciated the guests sharing their experience. And she also shared the podcast with a number of pregnant and postpartum running friends. So thank you for our great work. And Mm. then um, Gay um, Rutherford, so um, our uh, SDA president, she saw today's topic and commented that this feels super appropriate for Tassie athletes right now um, where it looks like it's bloody freezing because she's given us three very freezing faces. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's always freezing in Tasmania. This um, is mind true. Mind you, I, I did spend a few months down there when I was at uni for a project, but uh, that was admittedly from August through to October, so uh, it yep. was kind of the cold time of the year down in Hobart. <laughs> All right, uh, and as usual, Steph, I'm sure you've had uh, people mm-hmm. comment to you, come up to you. Did anyone 
pull you aside at the Margaret River Ultra and go, oh, you're the person from the Long Munch? <laughs> oh, no, I didn't get that out. Probably everyone no. was running away from me because I was asking for poo samples. For poo, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. That's not really going to attract people, is it? No, no. No. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, back to back to to Melbourne this week, so back I'm sure Melbourne, they'll be planning yep. to fill in next week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just a reminder, uh, if you have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us on social media at the Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or uh, if you have any other particular feedback or suggestions, you can obviously hit us up on there as well. Awesome. So um, today's episode, our Yeah, episode 37A, How Should My Nutrition Change When It's Really Cold, with sports dietitian Becky Hall. Um, as we said before, you know, Beck's a sports dietitian and a lecturer in nutrition and dietetics at Australian Catholic University, as well as working for the Olympic Winter Institute of Australia. Um, and through that role, she recently attended the 2022 Winter Olympics and Paralympics in Beijing back in February. Um, prior to that, she has done some work also over in Canada at the Canadian Sports Institute. Um, so she's worked with uh, various winter athletes in snow sports over there, as well as many of their middle distance runners. So she's had some good experiences living in very cold environments and working with people who exercise regularly, either training or competing or both in very cold environments. So we thought she'd be a great person to just share that experience with us. Uh, and look at some of those particular issues around when you're training in those cold environments. Obviously, here in in Melbourne and and even more so down in Tassie, as Gay mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, we're very quickly starting to cool down and getting mm-hmm. towards those winter months. So whether that's uh, you know you're out training early in the morning and it's really cold, or you're doing a race on a it's going to be a really cold winter's day, or you're commuting to and from work on the bike, or going for a run first thing in the morning and it's you know, frost on the ground and really cold or if you live in the northern hemisphere and you're a listener um, it's probably not so relevant now but I'm sure you exercise in a lot colder environments than we do here um, so we're going to talk about I guess both sort of above and below freezing but either way very cold um, what that means from a physiological point of view and a nutrition needs point of view but then also what that means from a practical perspective in terms of how to access and consume various sports nutrition products and um, some of the tips that Beck has from working with winter sport athletes um, in terms of what, what she's learned over the years works in those really cold environments. Yep. Yeah, awesome. Uh, let's get stuck into it. Yep, let's do it. Becky Hall, welcome to the Long Munch. How are you going there? Hello. Good. Thanks for having me, guys. No, pleasure to have you here. Now, we really wanted to talk to you about this topic today because you've spent a lot of time in a lot of pretty cold environments, I imagine, (laughs) uh, working with the Australian Winter, um, I always get it wrong, the Winter Olympic Institute, no, you can tell. Olympic Winter Institute of Australia, O-W-I-A, yeah. Yeah. I I know it's it's always, it's one of those um, names where the words are not the way around you expect them to be, but that's all right. Um, But you also spent some time working in Canada, so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. but before we do that, you've you've done some sort of research in the sports nutrition field as well in the past around particularly iron supplementation. And we spoke to um, Peter Peeling on this area you know, way back in episode 8A of the podcast. But I'm just interested, what was it that you were looking at and what were the sort of the brief kind of takeaways from, from what you did in your research? Um, sure. So my foray into research, so to speak, was at, born out of being a practitioner in Canada. So I was working with middle distance athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty, 
um, middle distance runners and they were travelling to altitude with the goal of increasing haemoglobin mass as a potential benefit for performance. Yep. Um, and they were recommended to take iron supplementation. Now, the resulted in them taking two tablets and the question was simply phrased like, do I take them together or do I take them separately? And from my reading, I, I didn't have an answer for them. So we actually conducted research looking at the impact of either having a split dose, which is taking iron in the morning and at night, versus a single dose in the evening. Uh, on overall haemoglobin mass gains. And what was really interesting was we saw that taking it as a single dose, and in this instance in the evening, actually saw greater increases in haemoglobin mass. So it was pretty cool to look at the impact of timing, even though it was an equivalent dose of iron, on overall impacts and changes in iron uptake and, and subsequent haemoglobin mass changes at altitude. So that's what my research was looking at, but it was very much born out of that practical question. Mm. Um, and trying to find an answer for their athletes. Yeah. Okay. And so I guess you know on that topic of of Canada and particularly you know cold environments as we're looking at today, um, tell us whereabouts you were in Canada and what the weather was like over there. Sure. Um, I mean, I was incredibly lucky to be in Vancouver. It's a very handsome city. You've got um, mountains that are snow capped in the background. You've got you know the huge um, sort of harbour area. Um, and ocean area so it's an absolutely beautiful place to be and I was uh, there at the Canadian Sports Institute Pacific which um, was based out in Richmond the Olympic Oval and in terms of temperatures in Vancouver it's really rare that it snows so it's actually kind of like a slightly chillier version of Melbourne I would say like you know winter's day it's cold it's maybe four degrees Um, but you know I did regularly travel up to Whistler or to mountain areas and then you're sort of sitting around like you know the minus five minus ten on a really mm. cold day yeah yeah awesome um and you also work with athletes um competing in uh, winter olympics and paralympics obviously the the winter olympics with this year in in beijing tell us a little bit about that experience absolutely so it was an incredible experience to be over there especially with some additional restrictions of it being, um, you know, COVID games, so to speak. But what I have to say was I I thoroughly enjoyed the experience and I think in part because there weren't the usual, um, you know, family and friends and supporters for the athletes, that the athletes and the staff and everyone were a very tight team. Mm. Everyone really worked together and that was an incredible experience. As a dietitian, like, you know, we're working alongside athletes that have trained for, you know, decades really to be at that pinnacle of their sporting career at the Olympics. Uh, and likewise, for me, a budding dietitian, it's it's the pinnacle of my sporting career to be there and be able to provide food in the environment at the time that it's, you know, it's uh, going to provide the most benefit, hopefully, to athletes. And so, yeah, it was an incredible experience. I have to say it was pretty quirky. Um, we put everything in a shipping container that went over. And so then we cooked for 60 people using um, hot plates, camping ovens and, uh, you know, all camping cooking equipment, electric fry pans for 60 people effectively in a bathroom. We converted a bathroom into a kitchen and cooked for everyone. Everything had to be washed in bottled water. So, you know, you'd do the dishes, you'd throw the dishwater out, over the balcony and it would quickly freeze because it was minus 25 outside. So very quirky in regards to the logistics of food preparation in that environment. But, um, you know, Chinese people were lovely. It was a really beautiful um, 
was set up and village and we were just really lucky to have that really tight team with all the athletes and staff all working together. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to Siobhan Crochet, who sort of worked with the, the team for the last few, you know, Winter Olympics prior to this one and, um, you know, Pyeongchang in Korea and um, Sochi in, in Russia before that. And, you know, some of the stories she has about some of the practical stuff, like you get there and there's just stuff that's not there that you expect to be there. Or uh, I remember, I think, in Pyeongchang they had, um, there was this room at the side of the uh, apartment they were in and they needed a cold storage room for all the food. Um, they didn't have anywhere big enough to store it in terms of a fridge. So they just sealed off this room, opened up the window because it was so cold outside and that became basically like a giant commercial cool room. Uh, did you have any sort of funny stories like that? Well, we did have very similar. We had ordered two big fridges that never arrived, but thankfully we had a huge basement uh, where it was consist- consistently minus five degrees. So we were able to kind of use that as like, you know, an ex- uh, extreme version of a fridge really. Um, so, yeah, those sort of quirky elements. And because it was minus 20 outside, if we needed anything cooled down, it was just a matter of popping it outside for a minute or two and it was <laughs> down to cold temperatures. And and the other challenges was that the floor was heated. So, you know, you couldn't put any food anywhere near the floor because it would be <laughs> melting. Yeah. Ah, the fun life of a dietitian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and do you have a particular sort of sporting background yourself growing up? Um, look, I was one of those people who just loved sports. I tried everything. I didn't show any particular athletic potential, which is why I think I'm the sports dietitian and not the athlete on any <laughs> particular field. But in terms of my um, love of sports and my desire to become a sports dietitian, I think that was born out of my experience on the weekends with my dad, who is a, a GP in a rural country area and as a result also does sports medicine so I was regularly Mm. on the sidelines at the footy games while dad was stitching up someone's head or like you know checking someone for concussion and you know I really enjoyed being in that team huddle and you know hearing the halftime chats from the coach and I think I just really wanted to be in that environment so yeah that's kind of what um, planted the seed. Mm, Fair enough and and do you get up to any particular sort of training or, or sport these days? Um, I love running. I'm quite quite happy if I can get in a 20k run on a Saturday. Yeah, like to stretch the legs and um, really quite enjoy trail running as well when I get the chance. Awesome. All right. Well, I think you'll be able to blend that with uh, the topic today, which is great. And then the final question before we get into the nutrition stuff: What's the coldest you reckon you've run in? Oh, I've run in. Oh, definitely done some runs in Whistler when it was like minus 10. And I would call that ice skating, actually. That's a mistake. Yeah. You shouldn't go running when it's so cold, the, the ground is frozen. But, yep. no, it's definitely cold. Yep. No, fair enough. All right. So I guess most people um, will experience, I guess, at some stage, you know, living through a winter that's pretty cold. You know, cold is obviously a relative term depending on where you live in the world. Um, but I guess our topic today is, you know, how would my nutrition or should my nutrition change when it is really cold? Now, I think most people are kind of aware that their appetite and their food preferences change you know, as you go from summer into winter, um, any, pretty much anywhere in the world that has sort of a distinct summer and winter. Obviously, if you live in the tropics, a bit different. Um, and this will obviously affect their day-to-day eating and their choices around training, as well as probably what they're choosing to eat or drink while they're running or riding as well. Um, and I guess for a lot of runners, cyclists, triathletes, we're not necessarily talking sub-zero temperatures. It might be, you know, sort of zero to 10 degrees Celsius or something like that. 
but obviously that's quite different in terms of how you might approach things compared to you know a, a warmer environment say you know 20 degrees or more but if we start off i guess looking at the actual biology of this is there actually a measurable change in the amount of energy that people will use just living day to day in a cold environment so say you know less than 5 degrees or something just going about their daily life um it's kind of a to kind of answer that question you have to think about what cold really is so someone can be in a cold temperature so, for example, um, you could be in a cold environment and the temperature be zero, but if you're wearing enough warm clothing, mm. you're not actually cold at your core yep. versus someone who's maybe in 10 degrees but wearing like a lycra suit because they're, you know, in a triathlon or something, then their ability, the, both their peripheral temperature and then their core temperature is more likely to be impacted because they don't have that ability to sort of regulate their core temperature because of the exposure. So I think it's absolutely possible to be impacted by cold, even if it's 10 degrees or five degrees. And in terms of whether that impacts energy expenditure, absolutely there is um, plenty of research to show that energy expenditure does increase when there's inability to maintain core body temperature. And that's as a result of shivering. So, you know, the body has mechanisms and thermoregulation um, mechanisms in place to try and get the body back to that ideal core temperature mm. so obviously as we um as we produce energy in our muscles whether it's for functional movement like exercising or as you said shivering which is obviously you know muscle contraction you know 80 or roughly 80 percent of that energy is actually produced as heat so that i guess the purpose of shivering then is to deliberately produce heat Yes, absolutely. So it's also energy expensive, though. So if you think yep. about doing that over a prolonged period, if you're exposed for a long period of time, then yeah, that could be really a concern. Mm, yep. Okay. And how about during exercise itself? Um, you know, whether it's working in, you know, running or cycling in a cold environment, or, you know, obviously you work with you know, cross country skiers and things as well. But if you're training regularly outdoors in a cold environment, does it actually change the amount of energy that you're going to be consuming per minute or per hour for you know the same say power output on a bike or the same running pace or not really um i think it's probably minimal in terms of like overall when you think about those events and also too because we tend to change our food preferences mm. around those times anyway um yeah i think that overall over a prolonged period of an event it's unlikely to have um a huge impact in terms of energy expenditure. There has been some research to show that um, increased energy expenditure is maintained in submaximal exercise, but there's very little different in high intensity. So if someone's going for an all-out um, all-out run, for example, or a really hard ride at high intensity or maximal intensity, or like a race, for example, it's unlikely to be changed versus this slightly more energy expenditure if they're going out for like a Sunday easy run and the temperature's colder and they're a bit more exposed. Yeah, okay. But it sounds like even if that's the case, it's probably not you know, a massive amount that they have to consciously sort of alter what they're eating because no, of it. No, I think there's probably an element though of uh, like level of duration. So if someone's suddenly going for a very, very long run, then potentially there is um, – Mm. you know, an increased need for energy that needs to be supplemented on top of what they might normally have. Yeah, okay. And are there any sort of specific macro or micronutrients where you would say that the need for those or the amount that you require, uh, even relative to others, is changed training in sort of a very cold environment compared to a more temperate environment? 
Um, I wouldn't say necessarily in terms of what someone needs in ingestion because I think it's sort of, you know, it's consistent that if someone's in an endurance event, then carbohydrates are preferred source and trying to get that in. Where we might try and manipulate what someone's consuming is more around like the practicalities of things will freeze if they're just Mm. solid carbohydrate, for example. So we'll often, you know, with my experience with winter sports, I might try and incorporate some foods that have small amounts of fat in it just to simply ensure that it's something that's edible at minus 10 or minus 20. Uh, An edible form of antifreeze, essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. okay. Um, And how about fluid? Like you often hear that kind of term thrown around it. Oh, you know, in very cold environments, you can still get really badly dehydrated, but you don't necessarily feel like drinking or you're wearing so much gear that it's just inconvenient to go and pee, for example, so you don't want to drink necessarily. Um, Is there any truth to that? And, And how do you see that kind of playing out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we certainly lose the drive to drink uh, in those colder temperatures. We also have a slightly increased loss of fluid through respiration um, with drier environments. Um, And it depends too, often for me, cold environments are also associated with being at altitude with winter sport athletes. So there's also the impact of altitude on that as well. But certainly in cold environments just by themselves, that drier environment can see an increased loss of fluid. But it's also true that we tend to lose um, we tend to lose fluid through sweat and things that are not really aware of it to the same mm. extent mm. Um, with evaporation and things occurring. And so there's sort of uh, a double whammy of potentially increased losses and also just an inability or awareness of what's being lost. Interestingly, studies have shown that there doesn't seem to be, um, you know, significant impairment on performance necessarily if the if the um, level of uh, fluid loss is you know, 2 to 3%, which is probably consistent with summer or um, temperate climates, but certainly there is that increased loss of fluid in colder environments, mostly due to lack of awareness through people wearing lots of clothing and not aware of it or, um, yeah, or, or uh, simply just not having, not thinking of, of drinking because that drive isn't there. Yeah, yeah. And I guess from a clothing point of view in that colder environment, um, I guess it's harder maybe to get it right uh, until you've had a lot of experience or you start out cold and then you get progressively warmer as you're exercising. You know, in a hot environment, you're kind of like, well, I know what to wear, I'll go with it. But you know, in that cold environment with, with layers and things, sometimes you could overdo it. And, and because it's covering you know, more of your body, you're less able to evaporate sweat off if you do start getting really hot and sweating a lot underneath. Yeah, and I think there's probably a combination there too of um, like wanting to drink but not wanting the fluid that you have so for example when you start off you might be wanting more warmer fluids because Mm. you are feeling cold from that external uh, exposure as the intensity increases your core body temperature goes up you start to normalize that core body temperature you probably want cool fluids again Mm. so it's it's also that ebb and flow of what is actually desired and desirable throughout the event which is probably going to change for any athlete especially with weather conditions playing a part and uh, we know that weather's prone to changing so it might be too that those those desires change yep and you're saying that sort of that fluid loss um through respiration um so so from you know breathing um is is greater in that cold environment because the air is drier does it have to be below freezing for that to occur um, I do not believe so. I actually don't know the answer to that. Like from a, I can't refer to a scientific paper for you there. I'm not sure. Um, mm. But certainly in colder environments, and I, yeah, yeah, I 
my understanding is that it would have an impact even if it was above above mm-hmm. zero and still in that colder environment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add to that as well that, again, this is an unusual context in the sense of I work with winter sports who will often travel up to like a glacier, for example, and they will simply deliberately not hydrate appropriately because they do not want to use the bathroom because going to the bathroom means standing on the top of a mountain where everyone can see you and it's extremely exposed. But I'm sure there are moments where triathletes or, you know, um, runners, etc., don't feel like they're in a position to be able to go to the toilet and so may strategically underhydrate to avoid that because especially when it's cold, like the last thing you want to do is expose yourself, which is what's required to actually go to the bathroom. So I think it's just important that anyone who is an athlete who's struggling with that to have a conversation with their dietitian because there absolutely are strategies to ensure that, you know, you are well hydrated and that you're not necessarily going to the bathroom as often as you might. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's just important to have that conversation. Mm. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, that preference possibly for, you know, warmer fluids at, at the start. I remember um, sort of pro cycling example, Milan San Remo, which um, if you follow cycling, you'll know all about it. And if you don't, you won't. Um, but it was oh, it must have been five, five or ten years ago now. Um, it actually snowed during that race and um, they actually had to stop the race for a period of time, bust them further forward, I think 50 or 80 Ks or something, and then they got back on their bikes. But, you know, in, in a sport like pro cycling where, you know, the pace can vary dramatically, you know, the breakaway goes and then everyone kind of settles down and they're not necessarily working that hard. And so, you know, hypothermia was a significant issue for those guys. Like they could barely, um, you know, hold the handlebars on their bikes and things. Um, so obviously a, a massive issue there and, and they were using a lot of hot fluids in that kind of scenario. Are there kind of um, hot fluids that you guys use with the the winter athletes that tend to be more popular or, or seem to work well? I mean, yeah, obviously hot Gatorade isn't going to go down so well. So what are the sort of alternatives that, that you guys do use? I have to admit, I've definitely tried to have an athlete consume hot Gatorade and she very quickly told me it was disgusting and how dare I suggest such a thing. Um, But uh, definitely we'll use hot fluids in and around training and events. So with winter sports, because, you know, when they're actually competing, they're often going at maximum intensity. So their risk of being uh, or wanting hot fluids during an event is much lower. But in and around, we'll absolutely use things like soups. So um, even things like Tom Yum soup, those instant packets, which have a little bit of carbohydrate, a bit of salt in them and nice and hot and easy to consume. So using lightweight thermoses or whatever to be able to carry that out to the event. Um, Broths work really well, like peppermint tea when it's hot. Um, Peppermint is or menthol, you will know from cooling, has similar impacts in heating as long as it's above 38 degrees. So that's a really cool thing. It can give the perception of warmth in addition to the actual warmth. So that's a cool tool to play with. Uh, likewise, capsin or a chili can also be used, but you just have to be careful that you're not giving athletes gastrointestinal concerns on top of trying to warm them up. Um, so, yeah, there's absolutely some warmer fu- fluids you can use, and I think it's about testing these things um, because you can get quite creative with this sort of stuff, um, you know, Uh, packets of noodle soups that you prefer Um, but it's just a matter of really practicing it and uh, 
seeing what works. Yeah, I was going to say, um, adding to that, um, from a practitioner, but also when I was um, doing a bit of racing in ultras, um, the one of the things we probably all use is um, we call it, I think, Coxie's um, chicken uh, maltodextrin uh, or polyjewel recipe. Um, but, yeah, so I'm just thinking just in terms of for our listeners, like when you're talking about using some of those options like your soups and your broths um, and if they're needing to obviously and wanting to get in the extra carbs, then adding the maltodextrin to that, which is a nice neutral flavour. Um, so obviously it won't be sickening like having a hot Gatorade. Um, but, yeah, they can add add in that maltodextrin and, and then get the carbs in along with the um, hot fluid. And I used to, yeah, make that and I'd be very happy to have it cold or hot in, in my training. Um, it just went down well because you've got the kind of saltiness to it as well. And it certainly helps to break it up if you do have other options as well throughout the event, but that like having something to go back to such as like a warm salty fluid is, yeah, a great option. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, so um, often in, in running, cycling and, and triathlon, um, athletes, as we mentioned, they can get very cold. Um, and as Alan mentioned, you know, it might be when there's been a break and they're not going as hard or maybe they've underdressed and I know I've done that myself. Um, so um, what do you have in terms of any practical tips or strategies um, in terms of food and fluids that, well, apart from the fluids that you've come across to help athletes who are more at risk of hypothermia than, you know, heat illness? Um, I guess uh, using sort of pre-warm strategies in the same way you might with, uh, you know, in the reverse with pre-cooling. So trying to have you know, the fluid that you might have before an event be a warmer fluid um, and potentially having some options that you keep on your person. So, like, we do this a lot in um, winter-based sports where, you know, they'll actually keep the food that they're planning to eat on their person so it's warm yep. or at least somewhat close to their body so that there is that additional warmth to keep it warm and malleable. Yep. Um, but that's something that absolutely could be practised um by a triathlete or a runner and if you know if you're carrying smaller items being able to carry it on your person will keep it warm and planning to eat those I guess or consume those earlier in the event um, and again if you have capacity for carrying a lightweight thermos on the bike maybe or something like that and having warmer fluids earlier in the event may also help um, and if you're uh, in an event where you, you know can leave fluids at certain points and potentially planning to keep warmer options mm. nearby or at those um, particular drop-off points so that they can be consumed, it is harder to do warmer foods uh, from the mm. obvious standpoint if you need to be able to keep them warm, but it's probably more about making sure that the options you've got aren't freezing cold when you go to consume them as opposed mm. to having hot foods. Yeah, so any tips on that, Beck, in terms of um, particular, I don't know, foods or ingredients that are um, less at risk of becoming hard to chew or freezing and or changing texture? So I have to say that we find that the soft bake options tend to work quite well. So yeah. things like fig bars or K-time twists or yes. yep. pikelets and pancakes, things that, 
tend to be naturally quite aerated, are less likely to go really hard and solid when they're frozen. Yeah. Um, so I think they're probably some of the better options. Banana bread, you know, relatively yep. low-fat banana bread can work quite well as well. Um, the thing to be aware of is like, you know, often muesli bars are a really easy way to get in some simple carbs um, in these sort of events and they tend to freeze quite hard, mm. most of them. And so what I would encourage anyone to do is if you think you're going to be in a colder environment for a particular event, pick your favourite things, chuck them in the freezer and really test them, you know, try and try and uh, maybe use use a hammer to test them. Maybe don't try your teeth as the option, but uh, try and test them after a couple of minutes out of the freezer to see whether that's the option you want to take with you because, you know, Nutrition 101 is to practice what you're going to do on race day before race day. So absolutely make sure you test it in the cold environments first. Mm-hmm. But music bars tend to be a no-go. no-go. I always call it the power bar test because, like, the oh. original power bars in both directions. Like, <laughs> yeah. if they get less than about 10 degrees, they're going to yep. snap your, you know, break your teeth before you break them. Or the other way, they just turn into a hot, sticky mess. They, mm-hmm. they remind me of, like, those red skin lollies in terms of how they are susceptible mm, to temperature. Hard. But yeah, it's yeah. kind of like everything is in relation to the power bar because that, to me, seems to be the worst possible one. Yep, I agree with you. It's certainly not something you want to encounter in cold temperatures. <laughs> Have they played around with then, like, um, I don't know if we spoke to um, Alan, did we speak to meg about this when we're talking briefly about um peppermint and it was in relation to cooling and then she told us how awesome it is also to be used yeah um, for for the heat um they were playing around with gels weren't they and adding um peppermint to that to either menthol gels yeah Yeah, menthol gels so there's absolutely menthol gels out there and look this is something that we have looked at um around using peppermint um and, you know, peppermint tea or sweetened peppermint tea that's kept hot. Mm. Um, one thing you do have to be careful of in any cold environment is with things like peppermint and capsin, which are perception changes. Mm. Mm. They do not change the core body temperature. Mm. So whilst hot tea, yes, does influence someone's overall core temperature, mm. it's not going to heat the whole body. So if someone suddenly feels they're warm but they're not, they can put themselves mm. at risk. So we just have to be a little bit careful with the way that that's used. Mm -hmm. And likewise for anyone listening, you know, having warm peppermint tea uh, is a helpful strategy but just having an awareness that if you're having that throughout the whole thing, it may lead you to believe you're warmer than you're you actually are. Although in terms of the research, again, we we just don't know enough about its use in in colder environments with hot Mm -hmm. peppermint at this point. Yep, yep, yeah, yep. Yes, yeah, so it gets tricky with the gels and stuff, doesn't it? But that's more so like if you're in real freezing conditions. Like you said, you can carry it close to your body and you get the warmth from that. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, it's certainly fascinating stuff. Mm, yeah. Um, and what about um, oh, any other tips in terms of how to carry the nutrition? So you said carry it close to you. Um, what about in terms of, I guess, packaging or? Yeah, so, I mean, again, this is probably more from when I worked with cycling, but when it was really cold, we did a lot of wrapping with foil as opposed to using Ziploc bags or cling wrap where, you know, 
when your hands are like tree chump, tree stumps, it's, it's very hard to open anything. So like, you know, just simple large foil and folding it in a way that can sort of like be pulled open um, and just bigger units. So it's not like having to pick up small things from a, you know, a bag in your back pocket. It's, um you know, it's larger units that you're trying to consume. Um, and when you say foil, Beck, I'm... Are you talking about our our foil here in Australia, or more like the Reynolds paper? I think overseas, where it the foil doesn't um, tear into the bits, or foil is good in cold temperature because it's um, how it um, forms is easier to open. Because I know, like, if I was to use our foil in normal temperature, I would wouldn't like it because it tears like too easily into the food. But I think in the cold, then that probably changes, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great point. I guess um, if someone's sort of doing it on the fly, one-handed, mm. I think alfoil is probably going to be the easiest in that cold environment as opposed to using cling wrap or something like that. But you're right, there might be some element of it of it shedding, but I think that's yeah. not going to happen as much in the yeah. cold environment because it is more likely to be bit firmer. more frozen, I reckon, and harder. Yep. Yeah, but again, if it's someone's carrying it on their person, maybe I think it's just something for people to try. Mm. Um, and, you know, we just really have talked about using those bigger units as the main thing, like, you know, cooking and using whole biscuits or rice cakes, etc., as opposed to like trying to eat jelly beans or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's certainly going to be easier to eat. Yeah, and I guess you've got to bear in mind that most of the time, well, a lot of the time you'll be wearing gloves of some sort. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, the other thing too is just about um, pre-opening things, so not 100% opening them, but like just, you know, if there's a tear required, then you start the tear so that it's not, you know, things that can be done with your teeth or whatever, just when your hands are cold. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's good. That sort of answers the question that, I, yeah, we had also about, yeah, the fingers and the obviously fingers not working as well so um yeah pre-tearing is a is a good idea if you can do that just have to be careful where you put your gels because you don't want them to suddenly squeeze in and yeah i know (laughs) create a gooey mess Mm. um are there any other little tips or certain foods or snacks or things that you've sort of found from working with winter sports that you think might be relevant to to this group here in terms of runners cyclists triathletes in that really cold environment um, I mean, I'm not trying to put in product placement here, but my winter athletes absolutely love the K-Time bars. Like it's yeah. just, it's something that's so soft mm. and it's super high carb. And often without, with the winter athletes, you end up having to suggest something that's higher fat mm. because just the options that are available, but also like a bit of preference, but they just love the K-Time bars at the moment um, as a simple option yeah. that's super high carb, but also really soft to eat in those colder temperatures yeah yeah well, that's cool um and um i guess yeah any common or crucial mistakes that you see athletes make when it comes to managing their nutrition when they are whether it be training or competing in very cold temperatures have you seen any disasters i'm sure you have I think there's definitely an element of just not being aware of someone's hydration status. So, Mm. you know, because it's cold, there's not that drive to drink. 
there's often a desire to avoid the bathroom. It's just not having that awareness of the impact of dehydration on themselves, like especially if you're out there for an extended period. Um, that can really impact, impact performance and training. And, yeah, you definitely do see that. And you see athletes deliberately avoiding like fluid consumption to minimise bathroom stops. And it does have repercussions, not just on the day, but also in the following day because they're playing catch-up still on hydration. So, yeah, I think it's important to have a strategy to consume fluid and then also really be proactive in recovery of hydration as well Mm -hmm. uh, after a a day out training in the cold environments. There isn't any increased um, urinary losses, is there, in the cold? Like, that's more if you're at altitude or, yeah. Um, at the colder temperatures, yes. Uh, what impacts, how's that come about? Um, Testing your biology, sorry. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of the method. Like a, yeah. In terms of the physiology, I'm not sure of the specifics and the mechanism behind it, but my understanding is that in the cold, it, it does. Yeah. It's cold-induced diuresis. I, which... I think part of it is actually because you have more blood flow to the um, the central organs, you actually get more blood flow through the kidneys. Oh right. Uh, okay. Mm. Yep. 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 Because you definitely have a withdrawal of blood supply from the peripheral. Yeah. 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 No, I'm pretty sure it's the extra blood flow to the kidneys which. Inc- increases the blood pressure through the the vasculature yeah. of the kidneys yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and obviously you know if someone's sweating less um then that'll that'll make a difference as well and obviously yeah. if someone's as you said before becky if someone's exercising at a high intensity they're going to warm their body up anyway in which case their core temperature is is up and so they'll get that blood flow out to the periphery and so it's less of an issue so it's more probably going to be if it's a cold environment and you're not exercising that hard, so you're cold as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so that's probably the times to be, you know, critically aware of it, I guess. You know, if you are doing that submaximal exercise and you are not well prepared, then that's when you're at higher risk of hypothermia as opposed to really going hard and, and maintaining that temperature. And maybe then um, do you reckon you two that you would add then or benefit from then having um some extra electrolytes or something in your fluids to make sure you retain it more likely yes and look that's something we definitely use with athletes who are training uh in cold environments and that's in part to accommodate the reduced need for the bathroom but also to help with retaining a fluid yeah. have you ever gone to the extent of using or trying to use glycerol for the same purpose uh no but that's a great um a great thought. I think there is a lot of culture and lifestyle uh, associated with winter sports. And so there tends to be this real, not rejection, but a real uh, not wishing to participate in supplements during competition and things. So when they're in heavy blocks of training, they, they will potentially use supplements. But, yeah, there hasn't been um, a desire for athletes to engage in glycerol use at this point. But yep. I mean, it could be something we look at. Yeah, and, and to be fair, I mean, I guess if if, this, if you're getting the sodium in anyway, and particularly if there's a preference for more savoury foods that fits with the texture and the temperature and those sorts of things, then probably that's adequate anyway. You don't necessarily have to go to using something like glycerol. Yeah, and I guess maybe that's something that is also worth mentioning. Uh, again, um, 
you know, the colder environments, we tend to see ourselves seeking comfort foods. Mm-hmm. So whilst this is not during the event, in cold days in winter, in cold training days, we tend to seek out more of those comfort foods. And so it's about making sure that we are making choices that still support our training and recovery goals and things like that, um, especially, uh, you know, if you're in a cold environment, um, you might be limited with what's available depending on where you are. Um, and so still trying to make good choices that are supportive of your overall goals and your overall health as opposed to, you know, going for the most uh, comforting food you can possibly find, which is sometimes mm. not the most nutritious. Mm. Is that a challenge that you guys often face with the, the winter athletes? Um, yeah, not with the individuals per se, but more with the nature of the environments they're in. Yeah. Like if you're on a little ski hill in Austria, all you've got is like, meatballs and bread there's no fresh fresh vegetables growing nearby um or you know if they're in rooker and and trying to practice their jumps they're very restricted with what they can access you know with it being dark for 15 hours of the day there's not much that's growing so it's more about the nature of the environment they're in and really struggling to actually access the fresh foods that they kind of um would prefer well, prefer and also need to have. And I think um, we're very lucky in Australia to have access to seasonal produce, but also a lot of produce around the clock, around the year. So um, in that way, we're not so restricted. Yeah. Well, what I'm going to do now is get stuck into the bonus round, um, which is where we get to find out um, a little bit more about you, um, Beck. Um, I think, yeah, those um, tips are, are really good um, and, um, yeah, the, the things for athletes just to consider, like when they are, if they are going to a race where it is going to be cold and it will often in the ultras it can, you know, change, like you might start off being um nice weather or warm but then if they're doing like a 160k race then through the night it can get quite cold or the the conditions can just rapidly change so um I think it's going to be really relevant to our our listeners um so thank you for that um so about you Beck if you weren't working as a sports dietitian and you went down a completely different career path do you reckon you'd follow your dad and become a GP or um, what do you think you choose? I think you read me pretty well. I actually would definitely go back and do medicine, I think, if I had my time again. Yeah. I have pondered it as a 35-year-old, but I think yeah. I'm maybe a little bit too old to jump into Never the medicine. Never too old, pool. Beck. Never too old. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would go back and do medicine, I think. So, uh, yeah. And what, what sort of interests you? What is directing you that way? Um, I guess it's... I think doctors have this incredible ability to listen. I know that sounds really silly, but uh, just this ability to sort of take on all the information and sort of problem solve and and really listen to try and get to the crux of what's going on. And I think we absolutely do that to an extent with nutrition as well, but it's just more encompassing Mm. in medicine. There's just this absolute appreciation for the human body and what it's capable of and its healing capabilities. So I think there's, there's that as well. Um, but in terms of medicine as a career, like I guess GP would be appealing, but also expedition medicine would be amazing as well. I was speaking to a doctor recently who's been to Antarctica and been doing all sorts of expeditions and gosh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. 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 We've had, um, 
Alice McNamara on the um, podcast um, and been lucky enough to have her as a participant. And I know she absolutely loves it, like, you know, doing the, the medical support for the ultras and um, just being able to see her social media and, yeah, just the wide range of um, experiences that you get. And, uh, yeah, so it, that does sound like a pretty cool, cool job. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly appeals. Yeah, yeah. And um, what about one of the things on your bucket list that you haven't yet done? Um, okay, one of my things uh, would probably be I want to do at least a month long hike. I've done quite a lot of long hikes. Yep. Uh, I do multi day hikes, um, both in Canada and here in Australia. And I'd be really keen to do like a four or six week hike. So. One day I will tick that off my list, but maybe, you know, up the PCT into Canada and on yeah. Vancouver Island would be a nice way to start that, that bucket yeah. list item. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, and what's a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't yet had the chance? Oh, I mean, I'd love to give, like, luge a shot. but yes. I'm in with you. yeah. Yeah, so I think that would be unreal, but I feel like it would also be terribly embarrassing at this point given I'd probably be surrounded by people I work with, so I might lose some respect, <laughs> but I'd love to give it a shot. Yeah, we had Andy Jones on the podcast last year, and there's a photo. Yes. I'm not sure if it was at a conference or something, so maybe you'll get the chance at like a conference where it's away from like the elite athletes that do it. But it's like him, Asker Yerkendra, and I can't remember, there's one or two other guys in a bobsled together. That's so cool. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. maybe one day you just pick the right conference, you might get the opportunity. Yeah, I'll just have to go to a conference in Norway or somewhere as far away yeah. as possible and give it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> just cover up. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> um, Favourite moment um, from the Beijing Winter Olympics or Paralympics? Oh, there were lots. I think actually getting to see my aerials athletes that I work with compete was amazing it's often hard to get into the environment when um they're traveling so much but tess cody's bronze medal was unreal it was amazing so that's probably the peak of it yep yeah um and do you live by any piece of advice or um or motto not really other than i yeah i just I think it's always to try and understand if there is a motto, it's to always try and understand whether it's people's behaviour or um, something new, a new language or whatever. It's, yeah, trying to get to that level of understanding. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, it's not a, a common one that you hear, but it's, um, yeah, that, I like it. Um, yep, we'll, we'll use that one. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Beck. And um, I know listeners may have have heard, but you you know we've we've got you when you've got a cold, and it's not COVID; it's a cold. Um, but yeah, thank you for you know um, suffering through and and talking to us when you've got that. And um, we know you've got a very busy schedule too. So um, yeah, thank you for taking time out and um, helping out um, our listeners with this advice. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Really appreciate it. That was great. Thank you very much, Beck. Uh, and I'm just going to handball it as I normally do to the wonderful summariser, Alan. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, 
yeah, well, thanks very much, Beck, for um, for coming on and, and sharing your your thoughts and knowledge with us. Um, you know, while she had a cold as well, so it's a bit under the weather. Mm. You probably heard that in her voice a bit nasally, but um, yeah, thanks so much, Beth, for soldiering on. Um, so I guess if we're thinking about cold environments, there's a few different aspects to this. There's, I guess, living through a period of time when it is really cold, so through a winter or you're travelling somewhere that's really cold. So it's cold outside, but it's not necessarily cold inside, so that's the first thing we need to think about. Um, we also need to think about them when we are training, we're going out and exposing ourselves into that cold environment doesn't necessarily mean that our body temperature is being cold depending on what we're doing what clothes we're wearing how many layers all that kind of thing uh, or it might be that we start off as Beck said really cold but then warm up fairly quickly um, and so you're dealing with you know, a cold body at the start but then kind of a normal temperature as you would have in other environments um, once you've warmed up provided you're wearing the appropriate clothing so uh, two two different things to consider there is I guess the elements being cold and how that affects the foods and food products that you might have but also the body temperature being cold and what that might mean as well. So I guess uh, in terms of you know, energy expenditure, do I need to eat more calories when I'm in a cold environment? Well, if your body is is at a normal temperature, then no, probably not. Um, so if you're wearing appropriate clothing, you're indoors a lot of the time in a heated environment and you're only going out for an hour at a time to exercise in that cold environment, it's probably not really going to make a substantial difference to your calorie needs. So you don't need need to worry about that really too much. One thing that um, you do often hear about is talk about sort of fluids and dehydration in very cold environments. Uh, and that could be for a, a variety of different reasons. It could be just due to a lack of awareness to drink or, or think, oh, yeah, it's cold, I don't really need to drink. Um, but bearing in mind, if you've, you're really rugged up, your body temperature actually may go up to what it normally does in a warmer environment. And you're then going to sweat as you would in a normal environment. But because you're covered in all those layers, that sweat's not going to evaporate as well. So actually, it might end up sweating quite a lot if you kind of overdressed um, for you know the temperature that you get to once once you warmed up and, and into your training session or, or race. So that's something to to have a think about there. Uh, you do lose a little bit more water through um, breathing out in cold environments because the air is generally drier. Um, you also tend to pee out a little bit more. Um, compared to you know retaining some of that fluid as well. So there's a few things going on there that we need to, to have a think about. Um, but at the same time, obviously when we're all rugged up, there's often a temptation to deliberately under drink because it's really inconvenient to have a nature break um, or, or go to the bathroom or something like that. So that does make things a little bit more challenging. Um, but some of the strategies that the winter athletes use um, for the snow sports is to deliberately add you know, more sodium, more electrolytes to the fluids that they're consuming because if they do that, it'll help them retain a bit more fluid. Some of the practical things, I guess, when you're training and competing in really cold environments, if your body temperature is cold or you're standing around in the cold before you start training or before you start a race, that's when you might really appreciate sort of warmer options, uh, whether that's solid foods or liquids. So things like soups that you can put in a thermos, you know, noodle soups, so you can get some carbs from the noodles, things like peppermint tea, which you could add. Uh, and I know a lot of the um, cycling teams have done this over the years. Uh, they've just added plain sugar, but you can add maltodextrin so it's not as sweet, so you're not having this ridiculously sweet peppermint tea. You can use things like chilli, um, although you've got to be aware that obviously has a potential gastrointestinal side effect that's unwanted. So 
some people might enjoy that sensation, um, other people maybe not. So just have a think about that before rushing in. Uh, as I said, adding maltodextrin to things can really help increase the carbohydrate content in both sweet and savoury foods because it doesn't alter the flavour profile of the food. So that can be really handy to add to you know anything from you know heated up um, pumpkin soups or porridge or something like that all the way through to, to peppermint tea or something. You can make this sort of... Um, savory kind of sports nutrition in terms of like even drinks you know have um stock use like you know chicken stock or beef stock or veggie stock with maltodextrin to make up like a sports drink that has a savory taste to it and and will taste okay warm like a broth kind of thing as beck said in terms of solid foods you've got to be careful because some of the solid foods particularly if they have a higher sugar content will tend to go really hard in a cold environment maybe not so much gels although they probably will thicken up a little bit depending on the product but often the bars and things can be really uh, difficult whether it's cereal bars or more your sports specific nutrition energy bars type things they can go really hard and be really difficult to chew and swallow Uh, it's going to give you a sore jaw or break your teeth off so from that perspective uh, foods that are a bit more aerated so things that are based on bread um, or some of the soft bake options here in Australia, we have these Kellogg's K-Time twists that Beck was mentioning, um, but any of those kind of soft baked sort of fruit bar type things, there's different brands in different countries, I'm sure they can be useful, things like pancakes and pikelets, banana bread, um, all those kind of options that are a bit more fluffy and aerated uh, will tend to not freeze or go hard quite as much in the cold environment. So they can be good ones from that perspective. The other thing is obviously keeping those things or if it is something like a gel closer to your body in terms of how you carry it around with you to use your body heat to keep it from cooling down or even freezing depending on how cold it is when you're when you're exercising. So keeping those things close to your body can be helpful. Obviously, you know, you can't really keep water bottles close to you. So if you're in a really cold environment, there is a risk that, you know, your water bottles will freeze. The other thing we didn't talk about in that interview is just adding more electrolytes will lower the freezing point. So you may actually be able to get it down to a lower temperature before it actually freezes. So that's not a bad idea as well. Or using an insulated bottle to try and um, prevent it cooling down as quickly might be the other way to go. Obviously, in some events, things like ultra running, for example, where you're going to have checkpoints and where the intensity is relatively low, so there is a risk of actually getting too cold and getting hypothermic, that's when more of the warm options might become more useful again. So that whether that's the drinks that I mentioned before, um, soups and noodles and, and that sort of thing, or actually hot food items at checkpoints, if that's something that's available from a support crew or from race organisers, can be a really useful one to have in that kind of environment as well so obviously picking foods that you normally like as beck said you know you can always do the freezer test if you're not sure whether that food's going to work in that environment or be appropriate just put it in the freezer for a little while let it you know get really cold to whatever the freezer temperature is then pull it out and go out for your training session and just see what it's going to be like or even just leave it around for half an hour and try and eat it and see whether it's going to be palatable or not Um, that's a really easy way just to test different types of foods if you're not sure which one to go for. The other thing we talked about was packaging because when you've got really cold hands, opening fiddly little packages can be really difficult or if you're wearing really thick gloves or something, um, that can be a challenge as well. So you know, using aluminium foil can be really helpful. The alfoil with the um, baking paper backing, uh, we talked about the Reynolds foil, which is one brand, but there are a few others around as well. Um, that can be handy so the foil doesn't tend to stick on to whatever the food is as well. 
and you know just wrapping um, wrapping that in a way that's easy to tear open or, or unfold quickly um, when you your digits aren't working as well as they should. Uh, and also, as Beck said, you know, if you are going to cut things up into smaller chunks to eat, whether it's a bit of banana bread or something, cutting them into bigger chunks than what you normally would. Because again, when your fingers aren't working too well or you're wearing really thick gloves, it's going to be harder to pick up things that are really small. So the bigger the pieces are, the easier that's going to be. Uh, and then finally, you can sort of pre-open some packaging, you know, start the, the little tear, just so it's a bit easier to, to get that open. You can use sort of pre-warming strategies. I guess that's particularly useful if you're going to be standing around in the cold in your exercise gear for a period of time. Say you're waiting for a race to start and you're standing around in 15 minutes in the really cold weather, having those pre-warming strategies to deliberately get your body temperature up before you venture out there or, or taking that with you if it's possible can be useful. And having a plan, um, both in terms of hydration, you know, knowing what your hydration needs are in that kind of environment and having a fueling plan that incorporates some of those practical things will go a long way to helping you in those environments. Yeah, yep. Um, I was just going to say um, when you mentioned um, just and um, when Beck was talking about um, how to package it, uh, if people don't know and they just want to ha- get an idea, some people will be familiar with um, some the the company called Scratch Labs. They actually have a really good resource there, little videos on how to how they wrap you know rice cakes. So it's not necessarily that you're going to be wrapping that in particular, but um, they've just got some tips on how it is easy to wrap things and um, and open. That's on their YouTube channel. Yeah, or just even you just Google Scratch Labs rice cakes and it comes up. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yep. And then I was just going to say, I think this topic is also really relevant for um, a lot of ultra runners because, particularly when you're doing your your hundred k or the hundred miler events, um, as Beck was saying, you know, temps. Um, change up and down so um, I know in UTA you know often it starts quite nice and warm but then um, you know later in the day it gets bloody cold so there's some really good practical tips in there that's relevant yeah absolutely for that overnight Mm. period yep yeah yep cool Cool. Awesome summary as always, Al. We are hoping for our next episode uh, will continue to be 37B, how should my nutrition change when it's really cold, but we will uh, leave you um, guessing who our guest is going to be. Yes, yes, we're speaking to, fingers crossed, our guests for, for next week's episode at the moment, um, but mm. they're a little bit busy at the moment in terms of their racing schedule over in Europe. Mm. Um, it's not giving too much away, but obviously no. when you go to Europe from Australia, it can get damn cold and a lot colder than what you're used to. Um, and so we're hoping to speak to this person about, I guess, what they've learnt in their time in Europe and, um, you know, working through the, the really cold environments there and things that they've learnt along the way. So, yeah, hoping to hear back from them in the next couple of days and organise that and get it recorded for next week. Uh, but we're not 100% sure yet, so we'll just have to wait and see. Mm. Yep. Awesome. All right, so if people do have any questions or even feedback and um, tips from those that are racing um, or training over in really cold environments, things that you've picked up that work really well, we'd love to hear them. So if you can send us uh, feedback uh, to our social media, Facebook, um, Twitter or Instagram, and then you can listen to us on all your popular podcast platforms 
and we would love you to share with your, your friends or peers if you find it helpful and we would even more love you to subscribe to us. Hmm. Yep. And just remember that there is a back catalogue there now. Uh, obviously, this is the 37th question we've looked at. So if there is a question that you want answered, it's worth going back and having a look through that back catalogue in your podcasting app because you may find actually we've answered that question already um, before you became aware of the podcast. Cool. All right. We will love and leave you and um, see you next week. Will do. Bye, everyone.